Hello, you're listening to the November issue of Cyber. The following talk was given by Professor Richard Passingham from University of Oxford. His talk was called What Functional Brain Imaging Does and Does Not Show. Hope you enjoy. Good evening, everybody. Uh, thank you for being here. Uh, we are the Oxford branch of the British Science Association, and we organize every month Cyber with our, as you can see, science talk in a pub. And today it's a great pleasure for me to introduce to you Professor Richard Passingham, that is an emeritus professor in cognitive neuroscience in Oxford University. He's a fellow of the Royal Society and one of the pioneers of cognitive neuroscience. On top of that, he's also a normal person, and I found that he's also a member of the Magic Circle. <laughs> so maybe I'm expecting some tricks, I don't know. Uh, in the past few years, he published few books for the general public, such as... Not the general public. Oh, sorry. Not all for the general not public. One for the... Sorry. The last one that he published for the general public is a very short introduction to cognitive neuroscience, published by the Oxford University Press. And, but he published also other books if you are a neuroscientist and interested about it, such as A Short Guide to the Brain Imaging, The Neuroscience of Human Cognition, and From Computational Theories to Their Implementation, The Legacy of David Marr. So uh, today he will talk about what functional brain imaging does and does not show. And I would like you to help me to welcoming him. Thank you so much. Um, if you look up my very short introduction to cognitive neuroscience on Amazon, there's one review and it gives it two stars. <laughs> and he says, uh, the diagrams are awful, um, there are technical terms, but if you look up on the German Amazon, it's given five, four stars, one person. <clears throat> um, so, first of all, I need to know what you know. So, are any of you at school? No? University? Yeah. Uh, so, those at university, what are you doing? Neuroscience. Neuroscience? Are you cheat out? <laughs> Where? Sorry? Here. Yeah, but where? Down in the south part. Yeah, in which town? Oh, heaven. And where are other people from? Just general public. General public? Are there any bankers here? Anybody vote for Brexit? Okay. Um, now, how many of you actually had um, an MRI scan or a CT scan? Ah, and of the people who've had MRI scans, uh, what was it like? Noisy. Noisy, claustrophobic, quite difficult. Uh, those of you who haven't had um, MRI scans, I should describe the scanner. <clears throat> you lie on a bed, and there's a big round thing of detectors, 
and the bed goes into that, and you may go all the way in, and you may be, how long were you in for? Probably eight or ten minutes. No, it can be half an hour. I've been in for four hours uh, because in the early days the machines didn't work, and so I was in there for four hours. Um, and it's the thing shakes, and you are very close to the top, uh, and it's dark. They may give you ear defenders, so it's not as noisy. But it's really quite frightening, and many people uh, chicken out. Um, now, when I started, which was in the 1960s, if you took an X-ray of the brain, of the skull, you saw the skull, but you can't see the brain. A single X-ray, you see nothing. So what you had to do was inject air into the spinal cord and it goes up into the fluid-filled ventricles, cavities in the brain. And if you had a tumour, they could then see if the cavities were distorted. And that was the only way that you could tell whether somebody had, let's say, a brain tumour. And it gave you a dreadful headache, uh, which could last for hours. Now, uh, if you have an MRI scan now, I don't think you get a headache, so, right? Yeah. Um, we now take pictures which are so lifelike that they look like, and I'll show you, this. And this is not a real brain, obviously. Um, the real brain, when you look at it in life, is pink because, of course, there's a blood supply, and it's soft. Um, if you catched it, it, it would sort of go in a bit, and it pulsates like that. But we think of the brain as if it's this awful grey thing, because that's what it looks like when you're dead. Um, now, I would love to have been able to show you PowerPoints, because then I could show you exactly where in the brain things are happening. But I can't do that, um, and that's fair enough. So what I'm going to do, I'm afraid, is just point with a pen. And because the brain's so small, you won't see a thing. <laughs> now, um, the pictures that you get are, they look like the brain, but you can also take pictures when people are doing tasks in the scanner, like mental arithmetic. And if you do that, we get pictures which we call functional brain imaging. And what you see on the screen is the brain, but you then see patches of colour. Now, obviously, there aren't patches of colour in the brain itself. These are simply indicating where in the brain there's activity when you do, let's say, mental arithmetic. Now, these pictures are very beautiful, very alluring, and very easy to misinterpret, and so uh, the papers do. So I want to tell you a bit about why you shouldn't read and I'm sort of taking what the papers say, you shouldn't believe it. Let's suppose I scan people who are depressed. 
Well, this is the inside of one hemisphere of the brain. And we'll find activity that's different here, where I'm pointing, um, in people who are depressed compared with people who are not depressed. So you might think that that suggests that depression's a brain disorder. And clearly, if you didn't have a brain, you wouldn't be depressed. <laughs> I'll grant you that. But all I've got to do is take a lot of healthy people, you, we assume, put you in the scanner and say, think sad thoughts. And we get the same result. So what this tells you is only that they're thinking sad thoughts. It doesn't tell you that it's a brain disorder. <clears throat> now, you could have abnormal activity there because you've got particular genes. You've inherited bipolar mood disorder. Or you could have activity there because you've lost your partner and you're not very happy. So all it tells you is that you're not very happy, which you knew anyway, so it's a very expensive way of telling you. Well, if you don't believe me, let's take another thing, which is the Pepsi challenge. <clears throat> We're going to scan people who prefer Pepsi to Coke. This has been done, published in the journal Science. And we give them Pepsi, which they prefer, and they know it's Pepsi. And what you find is there's more activity here. This is a different place. I'm not giving you the names, because it'll bore you. Um, there's more activity there when they get <coughs> than when they get coke, which suggests there's some kink in the brains of people who prefer Pepsi to coke. But you've guessed it, if we now scan people who prefer coke to Pepsi, there's activity in the same place. <laughs> so actually what that activity is, is simply telling you, it's nice. Now, it does matter. So let me take something which is serious and a matter of public concern at the moment. <coughs> and that's paedophiles. Now, if you scan paedophiles and in the scanner you show them pictures of children, then you can distinguish from the activity in their brain paedophiles from non-paedophiles. And you can do it almost perfectly. Frankly. Now, what does that mean? Well, of course, all that you're doing is showing that they find these children attractive. You can't use it to decide whether to let somebody out. Because you don't know if they're going to act on it. And you don't know why they find the children attractive. All that you know is that they find the children attractive, which, of course, you knew anyway. And the reason they are paedophiles might have nothing to do with their brains. It might, well, it might be to do with their sex hormones. It might be because they were abused as children. Nothing to do with their brains. It might be that they went to single-sex schools. Nothing to do with their brains. So you shouldn't think 
that just scanning people's brains and showing differences in the brain necessarily answers questions of psychology. It may, but it may not. So what questions could he answer? And I thought I'd just take you through either one or two, depending how interested you are, and depending how long you want me to burble on. And the first one was, um, why, um, and this is very current at the moment, why is it bad to use a mobile while driving? So let me ask you, why is it bad to use a mobile while driving? Any ideas? Distraction. Distraction. All your attention is in the phone. Yes. The first thing is, it's nothing to do with holding a mobile. As you say, even if you've got the mobile there. So you think it's something to do with distraction. Any other ideas? Not nobody who knows is allowed to speak. <laughs> You're not allowed to speak. Does he use, use the same sort of skills, the same kind of area of your brain? Ah, so we've now got two ideas. And the great thing about science is that most ideas you have are wrong. <laughs> it's true. Uh, you spend your life and you think, you go home on your bike. And you think you sold something, and when you're in the bath, you realize you haven't. So, we've got two ideas, and we're now going to see, using scanning, whether they're right. So, has anybody got any ideas how we're going to test? Uh, we'll take your idea first. So, let me just say what the idea was again. The idea is that in some way, answering the mobile and responding to what's happening on the road by using the same area of the brain. So how could we use scanning to find out if that's true? This is a tutorial. We're in Oxford. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, no, you're not allowed to say. So, anybody, any ideas? It's not difficult, actually. So don't, don't, don't think I'm getting for something chucked. Yes, I can scan the brain while one, one person is driving or doing a simulation. That well, we can't that. really do it while they're driving at the moment. So we have to be all right. No, 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 no. But something that simulates. No, no, no. We can put people at Eleanor McGuire in London, where I've done my imaging, um, puts people in a simulator, uh, taxi drivers, and they drive through a simulation of London. Yeah, so there's no problem. So your idea is to put them in a simulation of driving, and we can have people stepping out on the road on the simulator. Yes, yeah, go on. Um, and you use the MR scan, the scanner to measure the activity in the brain. And Fine. The brain are active and hopefully that will indicate now, what I mean. So they're driving. They're driving. Let's say through London. What else are they doing? Um, what I designed the experiment for is, and then so you from the scan you've got an idea of which parts of the brain are active during that activity. Yes, go on. Then you take a do a separate scan 
where instead of driving, they're using a mobile phone. Yes. And see what parts of the plane show now, activity. Now we've got a problem, but it's, we can get over it. If you speak in the scanner, it distorts the brain image we get from you. But actually, this problem has been solved, so don't worry. I won't worry you now <coughs> things. So actually, what you say could be done. Now, we've done something simpler. Um, scientists, when solving a problem, typically simplify. And so what we did was this. We didn't use driving and a simulator. We just had two tasks. In one, if you get pattern one, you press this finger. If you get pattern two, you press that finger. And the second task, if you hear the word book, you say book. If you hear the word pen, you say pen, and so on. That's all. Now, the first thing to do is find out if there's a problem if you do them both at the same time. So, what we did was we looked at how many errors you make when either you do each task on their own, or you do them simultaneously. And what happens if you do them simultaneously is you are slower to respond and you make errors. And then we scan people. Now, if you scan people while they hear the word book, well, I've got my pen out again, uh, you get activity here. And if you scan people while they see a pattern, you get activity here. Not the same area. So, does that suggest you're, all, you're wrong, or do we need to do something else? I think it is. Yes. Go on. Measuring what's happening when both activities are being carried That's, yeah, okay, that's been done, but that's not the issue. What I said is, when you just hear the word book, or when you just see a pattern. But of course you've got to respond. Now, if we get you responding to a pattern with a finger, there's activity here, and if we get you saying book or pen when you hear pen, there's activity here, the same place. So the problem is the response. And if you scan people while they're doing both at the same time, there's more activity here. And we scan people and we can show this activity when you see the pattern and when you make the response. So it's actually an area involved in making the decision. So it looks as if you may be right. Now, I've given a talk, and Dorothy Bishop, who's in our department, said, yeah, but, but, but um, driving's automatic, and uh, I don't see why, therefore, um, it's bad to do both at the same time. And the answer I gave was... Well, the problem is that if they're both going through the same area, you do one and then you do the other. You can't do them both exactly simultaneously 
which means that if somebody steps onto the road, you're going to be slower. And I thought that was fine. But scientists worry. We're actually paid to worry. Uh, you're not. Um, we lead an awful life in which we set ourselves problems and we try to solve them, which is a very, very silly thing to be doing. And I've worried and worried and worried about whether the answer I gave to Dorothy Bishop was right. Now, first of all, who's Dorothy Bishop? Does anybody know? Anybody read her blog? Yeah? Who is she? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, she's in the Department of Psychology here. And she writes a marvellous blog. She's one of the people, the highest rated blogs, I think, of all people. Okay. <clears throat> I didn't like the fact that she wasn't convinced. And so I worried. And of course, that means that I've worried about whether the second answer we've been given might actually be right. Now, of course, both of them may be right. There may be two problems. So let's go back to the person who suggested the first answer. Where are you? Uh, could you repeat for everybody your answer? I said that the destruction, that your attention will be divided between the two parts. Okay. So there's a suggestion that there's something about attention such that if you're attending, let's say, to the phone, you're not attending as well to the road. Well, surely not, because there's activity here when you're hearing, and there's activity here when you're seeing. They're not in the same place. Um, so obviously what you need to do is set up an experiment like this will tell people in one run, I want you to look out for the tones. And what we're going to present afterwards is both tones and lights. And in one run we'll say, I want you to detect the tones. So every time you hear a tone, press a button. And another run will say, I want you to detect the lights. And actually what you're going to present these both tones and lights, but they're going to be very, very difficult. So the tones are very quiet, and the lights are very dim. It's a difficult task. And now we're going to use scanning. So, the person who proposed the theory, what are we going to look for? Sorry to pick on you. <laughs> You'll never live this. You'll never live this down. <laughs> now, look. Let, let's just get the basics so that you can tell. If you're hearing, there's activity here. It's called superior temporal cortex. Doesn't matter. If you're seeing, there's activity here. It's called the infratemporal cortex. They're two different places. Okay, and. What we've set up is the experiment that in some runs I'm going to tell you I want you to detect the tones, and in others I'm going to tell you I want to detect the lights. What do you think we find? 
receptivity can be higher or lower, right? You could have very weak stimuli, and it will be lower. They're very, no, that, no, we're just making the task difficult, okay? So it's difficult to detect either of them. But I'm going to sometimes tell you I want you to detect the tones, and sometimes tell you I want you to detect the lights. Or simultaneously. No. Uh, uh, I'm always going to present both tones and lights. Okay? Is it anticipation? So if you're not, if you if you don't know whether you're about to expect to see something or hear something, that well, that, yeah. that's also true. But you're getting ahead of me. <laughs> <laughs> Anybody? Yes. Sorry. Sorry. I didn't see. No, that. that's fine. Uh, maybe because it's difficult, it mobilizes a lot of the brain and. Why well, does that too? Because yeah. the place are interacting together in the same. Oh, yeah. So it makes the word response slower? It's simpler. It's, it, really? The tones always win. No? Is delay the response? No. You see more activity than what you're expecting? Ah! Ah! Now then, let's come back to the brain. If I tell you to detect the tones, there is less activity in the infratemporal cortex, the visual area, even though I'm presenting light. And vice versa. If I tell you to look out for the light, there's less activity in superior temporal cortex by hearing, even though you are hearing tone. So it's positive evidence from the brain itself that if I ask you to attend to one hearing, you don't see as well. There's less activity in visual areas. QED. So what's the time? Uh, would you like to hear a second? Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Are you bored? No. Can All I right. ask a question? Is yeah, yeah, yeah. Look. Is that the same for most <laughs> We're not talking about sex. <laughs> Do you mean sex or gender? No gender. No gender. Women and males. Um, are you asking whether women are <laughs> inattentive or something? No, uh, there's been a huge literature looking for differences between men and women, I tell you. And mostly it's bullshit. <laughs> uh, it's not unreasonable to look for them, but mostly what you find is when you try and find them again in another experiment, they're not there. And um, the few that I know of that look reasonably strong, Doreen Tamura a long time ago, showing spatial tests, which men do better than women. And that seems to hold up. But um, the scanning, most of them don't. Can I ask one quick question as well? Is this yeah, oh, wait a minute. Let me come back to it. <laughs> no. Um, not only is what I've said about hearing true, but even if I tell you to listen, but I don't present any tone, there's less activity in visual areas. In other words, in anticipation, which is what you were saying, there's less. 
And is, is this assuming a healthy brain? It's so, assuming a healthy brain. And does I'm, neuroplasticity, like if there is damage, kind of then yeah. factor into this, where other parts of the brain are compensating for deficiency? <laughs> I'll shut up the rest uh, of the night. It's a really important question. Um, first of all, yes, there are brain lesions that cause distractibility, such that you're worse at this. That your attention is more captured, let's say, by the phone. So that's the first thing. Then you said, could one, after brain damage, could one area compensate for the other? And the answer's mm. <laughs> um, some people will tell you yes, and I'll tell you no. I'm very unconvinced. In other words, I think what happens is you don't fully compensate. The other areas just go on doing what they normally do, and they do the best. I don't think they change what they do. But that's a very quick answer to what you just said. So, sorry, any other questions yes. about this before we go? Yes, yes, yes. yes. So, uh, how does it work with a radio in a car? Why are mobile phones bad and yet every car has a radio? I Is think a, a very sensible, uh, not only do I not listen to the radio in the car, I prefer my wife not to talk to me. <laughs> in other words, anything that takes your mind off the road will have this distractive effect. You're right. So it doesn't matter whether they're hands-free phones or not? Sorry, I didn't it hear. It doesn't matter whether they're hands-free phones or not? No. Absolutely it doesn't. But it's I nothing to do with, you know, no, no. no. Yeah. Uh, but I had heard that talking to somebody who's physically present is not nearly as bad as talking okay. on a mobile. Let's, is... Okay, now, let's then test that. <laughs> Go on. We've got everything ready for you to be able to test that. It's a very good idea, and you may be right, and we could easily find out. So, go on. Well, we do the, the brain scan in a driving simulator, as you said. Correct. As was said here, we'll, we'll do it with the simulator, which is the better idea. Yes? Um, but presumably you can actually hear a real voice if you're... You've got headphones on. Ah, okay. <laughs> so That's... you could either have somebody who you think is present. Mm -hmm. They wouldn't be. They'd be in the scanning room. Or somebody... Uh, who you know is not present. Somebody you knew was on a long-distance phone call, for example, to try and be credited. Could all be done. Could all be done in principle. Once you've got this idea that we can look at whether there's less visual activity when you're listening, and we could then look to see whether what you're listening to matters. The radio is one example. Um, I don't know. I, uh, I listen to a lot of music, classical music, and I'm one of those people who won't, if, if it's on, I just listen to it. I'll never do that from something else. But I notice that on the odd occasions when, let's say, I'm looking up something in my iPad, I miss the music. Isn't that striking? 
<coughs> the music's still there, and you've missed, you've missed it, and that's the effect. It's very strong. And of course, normally it doesn't matter, but it's when somebody steps out or a bicyclist you know, appears that the extra time it takes you is going to matter. Yeah. Surely, if you're listening to something passively, rather than, you know, exchanging ah, there you're not making a response. Yeah, exactly. So, you've made a good point, which I missed. Yeah. Somebody back there said the radio, yeah. and you you're right, the but again, we contest it. Yeah. So, we'll just play music or not. Yeah. yeah? Mm -hmm. uh, so, either they've got sounds they've got to respond to, or it's music, passive, and we'll see whether there's less visual activity when you're listening. Or we can find it out easily. Yeah? Well, you should come to Oxford and uh, be students. <laughs> well, perhaps you are. How many are students in Oxford here? Oh, heavens. <laughs> yeah, yes, you're not allowed. Um, right. Uh, Let's tell you a bit more about the brain. Yes? So one last question. In the, in the distraction experiment, you didn't prove the distraction is bad, you just proved that you could focus on what you want to focus on. Ah, yeah, the result is that your response time in responding to the visual cue is longer. But you're quite right that the experiment I actually told you doesn't take that permanently. Yeah? Yes? Actually, it does, because you're responding. Uh, no, it doesn't. No, it doesn't. Yeah, no, 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 it doesn't. Yeah. The question, if response time is not important, but um, there is an echo of the memory, as we all know, when you're mentally sleeping, you can still go back for a few seconds and kind of yeah, yeah. pick up your brain, yes. what the person just yeah. said. Um, is that, uh, yeah, that, what you're talking about obviously is called what, what in the literature is called working memory, and we know what mechanisms are involved in working memory. And you're saying, um, given that I can keep it in my brain and don't have to respond to it straight away, will it have such a bad effect? Is that what you're saying? I mean, driving cars certainly have a bad effect, but there are other situations. But you don't know when you don't know when somebody's going to step out is the problem. So I don't know keeping it in your head. But sometimes, let's say the example would be my wife says something and I don't reply straight away because I want to attend the road. But I can still remember what my wife just said. Yeah, so obviously that's going on. Uh, but nonetheless <coughs> If I'm attending to my wife, yeah. <laughs> okay, let's go on. Uh, she's a lovely man. We talked about the limitation of the human brain. If you attend to one thing, it's you're not as good at responding to something else. And there are cases where both tasks use the same brain area. Let's take another limitation, and we'll take what happens after a brain lesion that's been raised here. So I'm going to talk about a patient called John, spelled J-O-N. And the patient 
had a birth stroke. People know what a stroke is? Anybody like to say what a stroke is? Yes. What happened? Oh, well, I shouldn't have raised the question. <laughs> but, but you know actually what's involved in a stroke? Yes. I had a brain bleed. Yes. So, it's, uh, it's so a it could be a bleed. Yes. Every bleed or it could be a bleed. Uh, exactly. So it's either a bleed or... I'm sorry, I, I, no, sorry, I should know. No, it's fine. Uh, it's that the cells, the brain cells, to work need glucose and oxygen, and um, if that's not available, the cells in the area that the blockage or the bleed is die, and they don't regenerate in most areas of the world. Now, this patient John had a bleed at birth, a blockage. Sorry that damaged an area here, it's called the hippocampus. And all through childhood and into adulthood, John has had terrible memory problems. So if you were to visit him, he wouldn't remember your visit. And if he went on holiday, he wouldn't remember his holiday. So he doesn't remember things that happened in his life. Well, we can now scan healthy people and we can give them, during the scan, we ask them to remember things in their life. This was done by Elena McGuire. So before the scan, she interviews everybody, finds out some facts that happened during their life, and during the scan, they remember them. And what happens, as you would expect, is activity in the hippocampus, but not just there, um, here at the front of the brain, and here leading into the hippocampus at the back. So, no surprise, if you damage the hippocampus, there's a problem in remembering. That's an area that shows up in the scans when you get people to remember things that happened in their life. Now comes the surprise. John, J-O-N, at school could uh, learn. And um, as an adult, he remembers things that he learned at school. Now that is Let me just go back to what he can't do. He can't re-experience things that have happened in his life, and actually he can't even imagine future things. He doesn't have that feeling we get when we remember things from the past. Yet, he can do his schoolwork not too badly, and as an adult, he remembers it. How on earth would that be true? And no one who knows the answer is allowed to give the answer. <laughs> yes? Maybe what you learn at school is more automatic, so it's like logic oh. more than recreating a virtual uh, world where... Yes, yeah, yeah. Okay, 
So this is the idea that there's something about schoolwork that's different, and what you're suggesting is it's automatic, which is okay, because sort of remembering an event, like if you remember this talk or something, somehow feels yeah. different. Yeah. Now, I don't think it's being automatic that's going to be the answer. Um, what else? Repetition? Yes. Sorry? Repetition. Uh, yeah, I don't know. You're onto something, but it's not. Uh, yes. <laughs> you're, no, no, no. You're onto something. When I remember events in my life, they're unique. Whereas 2 plus 2 equals. What's it equal? Yeah, we repeat it at school. Well, I think that is, uh, that is part of the answer. Psychologists do regard memory for things in your life, they call them episodic memory, and the definition of episodic memory includes the fact that these are unique events. Yeah. But let's use scanning to find out why John can remember his schoolwork. What would you suggest we do? Give Johnson schoolwork. Sorry? Give Johnson schoolwork. Well, that's not been done, but healthy people have been scanned while they do different sort of tasks. Now, I'm going to give you one example. Cathy uh, Price in London, now head of the Welcome Centre for Neuroimaging, um, did this. You saw three pictures, and you had to pick of the two bottom ones which one goes with the top one. And this is based on what's called the pyramid and palm trees test. So in tutorials, I used to give students this, and they used to do very badly, so I'll test you. Uh, it's a picture of a pyramid, and below it is a picture of a palm tree and a picture of a fir tree. And you have to pick which of the palm tree or the fir tree goes with the pyramid. Any answers? Ah, it's the wrong answer. <laughs> now, you're saying that because you think fir trees have a pyramidal shape. But of course, the right answer, as you will admit, is the palm tree, because palm trees grow in Egypt, and that's where the pyramids are. <laughs> so, in other words, this is part of your knowledge, and I hope you know the other pyramids. All my students got this wrong. Now, so I'll give you another example, um, which was actually in the test. You've got a, uh, um, a pair of pliers, and you've got a spanner and a saw. Spanner. Because? Grip Yeah, exactly. And so these are things which are part of your knowledge. So if you scan people when they do those tests, healthy people, the activity is here, and here. So now we have the answer. Um, John's stroke was here, 
and it disables a system here. But the brain is not a lump of porridge. Different areas do different things. And you can damage one bit of the brain, and other bits of the brain can gaily go on. Not only that, but the blood supply is different. This is the posterior cerebral artery, whereas here we're in the territory of what's called the middle cerebral artery. So you, if you damage one artery, you can leave a lot of other tissue working perfectly well. And this tissue is involved in what I'll say is called semantic knowledge, which is different from, as you say, memory for unique events in your life. But the key is that these are different areas, and you can show it easily by scanning. So, um, I once, in Canada it was, there was a meeting, and uh, a colleague gave a talk, which I didn't like, and being a rude man, I said, you're treating the brain as a lump of porridge. And what I meant was, you're really not taking into account the different areas of the brain and the fact that they're doing different things. And there was such scandal when I said this that I'd never been invited back to Canada. <laughs> it was an example of a rude Englishman. Okay, so um, one of the things that we found by brain imaging is something that we did know already because we know it from brain damage. That if you damage one bit of the brain, um, other bits of the brain seem to be working. But we can show that actually by imaging the brain. Now, let me just finally say I haven't told you how attention works, to go back to the previous one. And we have worked on that, and I'm not going to tell you the answer. That's the really interesting bit, but I can't do it without PowerPoints, and they've refused PowerPoints. So that's their fault. There you are. So, uh, any questions about the second part, which we're the idea is that uh, um, we can show different areas of the brain doing different things. Any questions about that? No? Oh dear. You must ask questions or I'll go home and tell my wife it was a disaster. <laughs> if he had repeated events in his past, so if it was like going to the same place on holiday every single Yeah, he still can't remember it. Um, it's a perfectly good question because, um, you know, uh, the distinction that we've made so far is between unique events and um, what we'll call knowledge. Um, so the answer is you still can't remember it. Sorry, you will have noticed I've got a shake. Um, and you're going to go away and either say he was incredibly nervous <laughs> or you're going to say he's got Parkinson's disease or you're going to say he's got dementia <laughs> and the truth is I take an anti-epileptic drug that gives you a shake 
So ignore the shape. Any other questions? Yes. When plain tunes to When when plain tunes. Sorry. When plain tunes? Yes. Developed. They'll develop in a specific part of the plane. And as they get more severe and as they grow, do they sometimes affect that part of the plane and the way it operates? And can that be used as part they of early, not just as early diagnosis, but as a way of looking at the They do, but there's a problem, which is the tumour also causes pressure. So it causes pressure on areas outside where it's located, which is why the better way of showing what individual brain areas is actually to image them while they're healthy, rather than to look at them. Yeah. And the answer, and also strokes affect um, the, they don't just affect the grey matter, which is where the cells are, they affect the connections between areas that lie underneath, because they also need a blood supply. And so again, that's not a very good way of saying what an area does. Oh, no, no, no. It was no, no, no. Of, oh, I was more interested in early diagnosis of lynchings. <laughs> um, yeah. One of the interesting questions about brain tumours is this. Uh, they can grow slow or fast. Now, I've always said that you don't recover by the area in the opposite hemisphere taking over. Somebody asked. You may have asked. I don't know who it was over here. But the evidence is that if the tumour's slow growing, that's exactly what happens. <coughs> yes? Uh, you said that if you damage the brain, the mm. other part can do, cannot well, take over. I, I said that, yes. But I, I read and see a video of uh, a little child in America. Yes. Uh, she had a brain disease that eat the flesh or I don't Yeah. And they removed half of Correct. her brain. And Correct. That's done in London too. In, with intense uh, physiology, she was able to yes. move back the other half of the body. So how right. that's Yeah, yeah. No, good question. So, I'm talking about the adult brain when I say that. There are, there's long been a question about whether damage to the brain early in life allows recovery of a sort that doesn't happen in adults. And in 1973, I published a paper <laughs> 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 um, on, uh, it was in animals, on whether that particular belief is true. Now, in London, there's a series of patients in whom they removed one hemisphere because of very severe epilepsy and the epilepsy crosses to both hemispheres and then you're in danger of your life. And um, apparently Vargas then in London has looked at these to see to what extent the recovery is perfect. And the answer is, it's not perfect. Now, what you said though, is that they remove one hemisphere and let's Let's say, which hemisphere? Give me a hemisphere. Right. Right, that's this. Okay. This hemisphere controls this hand and there. Fine. And this hemisphere controls this hand and there. Yep. 
and you've said they've removed this hemisphere, and lo and behold, this hemisphere is now able to control this arm and leg. It was not perfect, but I'm No, 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 that's what you said. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I want you to use brain imaging to find out why that could be true. I guess maybe the connection... No, are no, 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 we're going to just scan, scan people while they're either doing that do or they're doing that. You move the leg, so then... Don't worry about the leg for a minute. Let's just do the arm. Let's just do the arm. So the arm, so you want... We'll scan you while you're using that arm. We'll scan you while you're using that arm. And yeah. what do you think you found? The action is moving an arm and not... No, what do you think you find in the brain when I do that or when I do that? Now, first of all... The area controlling that is the motor cortex, and that lies here. And obviously, as you know, some people have strokes that affect uh, the movements of the arm and limb. And that's either because the motor cortex is itself affected or because its connections are. Okay, let's come back. It's very easy. We're going to scan people while they either do that well, they do that, and we're going to look in their motor cortex, and what do you think we find? Ah. Now, what we find actually is this, that um, if I do that, there's activity both here and here. If I do that, most of the activity is here. But there is a bit both. So actually two things are true. There's dominance, meaning this hemisphere is more likely to look after both hands. But even then, I can detect activity here uh, for both hands. So I think the answer is, and it was a really nice example, and it may only happen in children that this is able to happen, is that, yes, you could remove that hemisphere, and the other hemisphere could take over, but that's because it already has that capability, which I can show even in adults. But you're implying that one hemisphere would be better at doing this than the other. I think you're right. Yeah. Yeah. This would, this would now, whether that's true, I don't know. Yeah. But, the, but the whole point about science is to say, X might be true, and then go out and find out if it's true, and I might be wrong. So in the bath tonight, I'll probably decide to <laughs> Yeah, any, any other? Yes, yeah, yeah. Uh, just a general question. This was actually a big development in your scientific methods in the past few decades. I'd be interested in hearing your view. Where do you think it's going to go next? Do you think yes. imaging is going to develop? If you read my little book, which I wasn't allowed to talk about, <laughs> <laughs> where is Christiana? Yeah. Right, this is correct. I wasn't allowed to talk about it, correct? You are, Okay. Okay. <laughs> there you are. <laughs> Two stars. Uh, so, uh, when you write these very short introductions, which is to know you to be serious, as you know, 
you're asked to say what the future is. And in here, um, I say what I think the future is, so let me briefly say. It's already happening. The first thing is, in science, it's terrible predicting the future. We're always wrong. Um, people didn't foresee quantum mechanics. They didn't foresee so many things. We're terrible about predicting the future. So what I really would like to do is just say, what are we doing at the moment that is taking things forward? Now, the first thing is, what I've been talking about is a method by which we show you where there's activity in the brain. I haven't told you how it's found out. Now, actually, it's not measuring the cell activity. What it's doing is making use of the fact that when cells become active, they need oxygen. And it's taking a measure which compares, um, I, I don't want to go into it technically, it compares the amount of oxygenated blood, the blood coming in, to the deoxygenated blood in your, um, that, that had the oxygen removed from you. Now the problem with this method is that it's very good at showing you where something happens, but the response is slow, and it's of the order of this is of the order of a second. We can do better, but it's it's bad. Um, so what we really want to do is measure the activity of the cells themselves. And we can do that using magnetoencephalography. And uh, there's a scanner up at the Warnford. Uh, has anybody actually taken part in an experiment? No? No? Um, Kian Obrig in the psychology department, the head of the psychology department, is the head of that unit up there. It doesn't measure the electrical activity of cells, it measures the, magne the magnetic signal that's given off at the same time as the electrical activity. And therefore, it's got a temporal resolution of the order of milliseconds. So now, we can ask, not just where are things happening, but in what order are they happening? We can follow activity, let's say, if there's a visual input, as it goes through and finally ends up in the motor cortex. Now that's got limitations, which is that the spatial resolution is not as good as the method I've been talking about. So what's happening now is we do two things. We first of all do fMRI, functional magnetic resonance imaging to get the spatial resolution, where is the activity, and we either use magnetoencephalography or some other similar method to look at the order of events, the timing of events. So we need to understand when things are happening and not just when. But in any small area of this brain, there are millions of cells there are 86 billion cells in the human brain. So if we to understand how the cells combine 
to produce the behaviour, the thoughts, we're going to have to record from the sound. To do that, we put either a raise under the skull of electrodes. That's one method. So let's suppose you're going to have an operation for epilepsy. Before the operation, they'll put a raise, or they may put a raise of electrodes under your skull, and they can then measure the activity of cells individually when you're doing things. And, for example, um, uh, well, so that's one, one way. Uh, and secondly, you can actually put electrodes, so very thin wires, microns thick, down through and measure the activity itself. And the reason you can do that in the human brain is that it's not painful because there are no pain fibers in the brain itself. There are in the blood vessels, but not in the brain itself. And so in one very famous experiment, they put electrodes down here, and they recorded around this area, the hippocampus, and they showed people pictures. And one very famous case, which I talk about in the book, two stars, remember? Um, <laughs> is uh, um, the case where they showed pictures of Jennifer Aniston and they found a cell that only responded when the person saw the picture of Jennifer Aniston, whoever she is. <laughs> um, so, we're going to be able to do that. We can record from cells. That's during surgery. So that's they're having operations for one reason or another, and you put electrodes down. Um, they're not left there, they're taken out, obviously, after the operation. So all that's done during the operation. And you can do that because people can be awake during the operation for this period, and you don't feel it because they're on the pain puppets. Um, so that's being done. Uh, let's just go back to the arrays. You'll have read that um, there's an experiment just being carried out. This is in monkeys, in which they record from motor cortex with um, electrode arrays. And uh, this monkey has a spinal cord section. And they can send the signal from motor cortex from here and stimulate below the section and the monkey recovers walking. Um, and um, <laughs> Don't worry. Uh, she may we shouldn't laugh, she may very reasonably not like the idea of dealing with such an experiment. As you know, there are a lot of different views about whether or not you can, should, or should not have had experiments like that. So, I guess that's what she 
Um, so, um, <laughs> she just needed to right? <laughs> <laughs> um, the last, the last really exciting thing that's happening is this. Um, 86 billion cells. Um, well, you can use a computer to try to produce computer models of how the brain's working. And the most exciting ones, I think, happening at the moment are happening in London, the group that Dennis Hassabitz runs, it was, um, he did work on the hippocampus with Eleanor McGuire, and he's now doing this work, and it's on what's called deep learning. And you've probably read of uh, the fact that they've been able to produce a computer program that beat uh, one of the champions in the game go in career. Uh, um, he wasn't actually the top champion, I think he was the second. And he beat four out of five games. And uh, recently, uh, the same group have produced programs such that um, uh, the system is able to find its way around the London Underground map. Is more difficult than you might think, because um, Summerfield in Oxford is involved in that. So, um, uh, you, you got it right. <laughs> um, uh, unfortunately, Google has bought up uh, the uh, deep learning, uh, the firm DeepMind, um, and Google is going to use it to pry on you and me and find out more and more about us to target adverts such as this is not ready. Oh, I'm a burglary. One very good question. Is the number of brain cells you have finite? Because I've read and heard various different things. Certain activities can regenerate brain cells. And no, there's only one part of the brain that regenerates, and that's the hippocampus. Right. And... It's, there's going to be a very big scientific story one day, I promise you, we don't know yet, about depression and the hippocampus. And it's all going to be to do with the regeneration of cells and the immune system and so on. So this fact that cells in the hippocampus do regenerate is going to turn out to be really important. Um, we uh, originally found it out in two ways. One a man called Pascal Rakic showed it in animals. But secondly, Eleanor McGuire studied taxi drivers in London. You may have heard of this. And she simply looked at the size of the back of the hippocampus in taxi drivers, depending how long they've driven a taxi. And it gets bigger the longer you've driven a taxi. Can that be connections? Sorry? Can that be connections? The um, method that was used, yeah, so let, let's, let's go slowly. Um, you're quite right, so don't worry. Um, Heidi Johansenberg, up at the JR, got people juggling. And uh, the longer you juggle, the more you can see certain connections appear to get bigger. The question is, what exactly is getting bigger? 
We knew this, but the fibres have a myelin sheath, which is an insulating sheath, and this gets bigger. This sheath gets thicker the more the connection is used. So what you're saying is, could the fact that there's more that the back of the hippocampus is bigger, could that be connections? Now, no, it's not. It would have to be connections within the cortex. But absolutely, it could be that. It could be that. It could be that the connections between cells get stronger, synapses, and so on. Or it could be to do with the myelin. Yeah. So the answer is, I'm afraid, I don't know the answer to your question. And find out, I think we have to do it so on time. Staying with the hippocampus, there's some alarming evidence, I think, that having a general anaesthetic in the first okay. few years of life yes. can damage the population of yeah. cells that are meant to reproduce. Could you comment on that? The answer is no, but there's a lot of frightening evidence about things that happen in early life, but it also happens in old people. Uh, that is, uh, I hear of alarming things of old people having anaesthetics and never being quite the same again. Um, now, your specific case is that we know cells in the hippocampus are reproducing. This might be a critical area of life, and if uh, there's uh, an anaesthetic at that time, does it affect them? I don't know the answer, uh, um, but. but um, it's exactly for that reason that we are not allowed to scan children less than about eight. Uh, not the hippocampus specifically, but it's this general worry about when brain cells are dividing and so on. Most of them are divided by them, but when that's happening, what <coughs> would the effect be of a magnetic field? And well, we don't know. Now, if you were um, a child of three and you had something wrong with your brain, then probably the ethics would be that they'd allow you to be scanned. But we wouldn't be allowed to scan them. So we wouldn't be allowed just to get in lots of three-year-olds and scan them. But there is certainly suspicion that there's a worry that it might. Yeah. Yeah. Last question now, and then... So, so the last thing I want you to do is on Amazon, it can either be one star, <laughs> four stars, five stars. Um, if this was two star, raise your hand. <laughs> okay. Thank you very much. No, wait, there is a last question. There's a last question, I'm yeah, sorry. Going back to John. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, does he remember physically being in school? What a good question. And the answer should be no. Okay. But he just remembers learning all this. But the the answer should be no. Yes. Yeah. Um, now, uh, now uh, we, we, one more question. 
You're allowed a question. You're allowed a question. Why do you, what in our evolution do you think caused us to have a bias towards the quantum concepts in our ability to attend and make decisions? Yeah. Um, okay. What I haven't told you is that the means by which you can attend to sound or you can attend to pain is that there aren't just connections going from the back of the brain forwards, there are connections coming from the front of the brain going backwards. And we've done work showing another half of what we were some of the earliest, showing that if I tell you to do task A or B, there's activity here, remembering the task, and then that it's that activity that influences whether there's more activity in hearing or seeing. So, and that's called the top-down um, influence, and I think you're asking me whether in people there's further development of the prefrontal cortex that leads to that yeah, top-down Okay, so the first question is whether in people this area of the brain, which is called the prefrontal cortex, is bigger relative to the rest of the brain than it is in other animals. And people disagree, and they disagree horribly, and they scream at each other, and when people write papers saying it's bigger, the other people review them and say that's nonsense and turn the paper down, <coughs> and vice versa. And I'm afraid I'm one of the people who maintains that in people this area of the brain is indeed bigger. Um, part of it is twice as big. Um, relative to the brain as a whole as in a chimpanzee. So that's the first point, and given that, I think that means a stronger top-down input. But it depends on this composition, which I just said. Uh, and this is the frontal polar cortex is twice as big in the human brain as it is in the chimpanzee relative to the size of the brain as a whole. Right. One, two, three, four, or five stars. <laughs> I'm really upset about this. <laughs> well, I'm sure people know we buy it. <laughs> so help me thank uh, Professor Patia for being Thank you for listening to our podcast. You can find all the details about our upcoming events at www.oxfordcyber.com. You can also join us on Facebook on British Science Association Oxford Branch Group and follow us on Twitter where our handle is at Oxford Cyber.